Close the Curtain podcast is an audio platform created to educate, entertain, and inspire women to live their best lives while they close the curtain on things that no longer serve them. We bond over wine or the drink of your choice while sharing many laughs, loves, and sometimes even tears. While this show features our opinions, it should not take the place of you seeking professional healthcare advice. Please buckle up and enjoy the show. I fly United, I fly first class. I make them close that curtain because I don't like all that suffering going back and close. It's so hot, we can't breathe. Please close the curtain, I can't take it. I only have one of them great. I can't help them all, please. Please, please close the curtain. Yeah, I'm for sure, for certain. Some topics be making us way too uncomfortable. Queasy stomachs hurting. We do not deal with negative energy, vibes, and negative person. Tell the story, this hurry up urgent. I needed to close the curtain. I'm Shalana. Don't let the sweet voice and the stethoscope fool you. Because I can tell it like it I is. Hey y'all, I'm Caroline, a Midwestern girl with a Southern flair. I will open and bless your heart in the same breath. After turning 30, there's two places I strongly belong. In a bed and in a book. Sometimes both. Nalita. I fly at night and I fly first class. Close that curtain because I don't like all that suffering go back and close. of the close the curtain audience it is again another Tuesday with your favorite crew because it's Tuesday you know that we hitting you up with the latest entertainment news and tea that we have to offer starting the icebreaker we have a friend of the podcast Mr. Dion Sanders and this <laughs> this past week he was all about sharing his wealth of knowledge about the football team, you wonder? No, not at all. This Jackson State head football coach was a bit unorthodox when he was teaching his players different lessons. One of the latest lessons was about the booty paper. Let's hear what he had to say. This pisses me off. I'm tired of this. I know this is funny, but when you go pee and somebody leaves their booty paper on the toilet, I got a problem with that. How hard is it to take your booty paper and just throw it in the toilet and flush it? Now, the next person that comes to the bathroom has to grab or touch your booty paper and put it in the toilet so it's flush. I got a problem with that. So every time I find booty paper on the toilet, I'm going to just bar that whole toilet, and that's going to minimize your toilets down every time I catch one of them. So y'all gonna mess around and have two toilets right here and everybody lining up to do them. So please, just be polite with your teammates. Treat the toilet I got in there. Treat the toilet like your mama got next. 
All right, just treat the toilet like your mama got next. Okay, now let's move on to the football stuff. Uh, like. <laughs> Said, treat the toilet like your mama got next. <laughs> right. Because you don't want your mama coming into that bathroom with that paper all lined up. And she got to make a decision. Am I going to sit here or no? <laughs> Y'all, what I tell you. <laughs> this had me laughing all day. My sides were hurting. It, it, it had to be at least, I think, 1 a.m. in the morning when I ran across this uh, video. And when I tell you the, the tears were rolling, I could not stop laughing because this stuff happens in real life. <laughs> when you go into public restrooms, especially Starbucks in the airport, the first thing you see is the toilet liner sitting there. <laughs> and then it's like, when you have to go to the bathroom so bad, you're faced with a decision. Like, do I touch this nasty paper? Do I squat over it? Like, what do I do? <laughs> so I'm just glad he brought it up. It was just, it was hilarious. For real. And the bathrooms at the movie theaters are another prime example of where you can find this nastiness going on. Or the truck stop. Some of them be real clean, but a lot of them, dang. That, and that's the only place I want to stop when I travel. <laughs> but lately, I've been having to press that button to call for an attendant to clean. They'd be like, is this bathroom clean to your satisfaction? No, because I had to skip over three or four stalls to use the bathroom. I'm teaching my 10-year-old steadily that she better not go into a bathroom and not line the seat. And then when she finished, put that crap in the trash or in the toilet. Don't nobody want to see that booty paper out. <laughs> not the booty paper. And sometimes but you know it's what? not just booty paper. It's got pee. It's got poop. Like I think what tickles me the most is that he called it booty paper <laughs> and not liner. Uh, I mean, but what is it called? I, I never knew there was a name for it. What is it called? A seat, a, a seat oh, cover. It was a toilet liner. It's a seat, a seat cover. covers. Yeah. Y'all don't even know. It's booty paper. Yeah, he, he was fed up and came up with anything. You hear me? He said he was Ooh. tired of this. I tell you what, B. Jackson said, y'all better put that booty paper in that toilet. I know it. But y'all be don't lining up the doo-doo. Right. <laughs> following that although nothing seems like it can get close was our sister Ooh, katrina Sergio looks like underscore cat on our tiktok and she's asking is blood thicker than water it's another morality question and after we hear what she says we will decide if blood is indeed thicker than water you throwing these bowls for your friend or for your cousin let's find out what happened to katrina to have her questioning what would she do? So today I asked my friends another morality question, which in return caused an even bigger argument than the last one. And I need to know what y'all will do. So say you're going out to dinner with your significant other and you look across the table and you see your best friend's significant other on a date with somebody else. And now you're angry, you're fuming, you about to get up and beat that mother. And as you get up, hands ready, ready to throw, you walk across and you notice that the person that they're out with is your cousin. And you and your cousin are very close. And your cousin knows that the person that they're out with has a significant other at home but they don't care how would you say something to your best friend who you've known for a long time and possibly get your cousin's ass beat or would you back off and do nothing because you and your cousin are also very close Man. So ladies, this is 
is a ton of mess going on. A ton of it. Shalana. My my dear cousin. (laughs) First cousin at that. Right. What you gonna do, boo? Girl. First of all, I'm gonna put my head down and say a prayer (laughs) and ask for guidance as far as what to do. But I think at the end of the day, blood is thicker than water. And it's the cousin who's out with the best friend's boyfriend, right? Make sure I got this right. The best friend's, yeah, husband. Well, that makes it even worse. So blood is thicker than water. So I think what I would do in this instance would be to pull my cousin aside and be like, girl, what are you doing? I would try to talk some sense into her. Don't let me see you out here with this, my best friend's husband no more. And I don't know. I can't even say, I wouldn't even say anything else about it because then I wouldn't be able to look at my best friend. Y'all come back to me. I got to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all, I got to think about it. All right. Okay. So boom, I'm at dinner and I see my best friend's husband having dinner with my cousin. I, I ain't saying nothing. I'm sorry, Nalita. I was going to say that, but you led with, what would I do if it was you? See, I was going to say that. I was going to say, I would sit there and act like I ain't seen nothing. I mean, and mind my business. That's the easiest thing to do. Think about the three of us, right? So like, if I see you (laughs) having dinner with Nalita's husband, what am I supposed to do? Mm -hmm. I guess at the end of the day, it depends on where your loyalty is. Because there are some relationships, I'm not talking about mine, you know, specifically, but in general, there are people who are really, really close to their best friends and and they're closer to their best friends than they are their family and vice versa. So I guess at the end of the day, it just depends on where your loyalty is. I might mention and say, hey, I saw your boyfriend out with somebody, may not mention that it was my cousin. So I might do that. And then maybe take my cousin to the side and be like, yo, you can't be doing this. You know, I don't know. And I think you just have to unpack what all is going on in this situation. Cause the background was that the cousin knew he had a significant other at home and she just didn't care. Now, does the cousin know in addition that he has a significant other and that their significant other is your best friend? And then that puts you in a compromising situation because you're just like, man, now this person that I probably done went through all these different battles with, I don't have that same foundational relationship with my cousin that I have with my best friend. Because sometimes friends can become closer than family members. But at the end of the mm-hmm. day, you know, just we've always been taught that family is family over everything. But you remember that one story we had a couple of uh, months ago where this girl had gotten an invitation to her cousin wedding and she was marrying her ex. Y'all remember that? Mm-hmm. It was like her aunt yeah, told her that family is everything and she needs to put her feelings aside and come to that wedding to support her cousin on her special occasion. So, mm-hmm. like, how and Sometimes would you- it's not always that way. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's what I meant. Like, I guess it's where your loyalty is at, at that time. 
Right. <clears throat> I would probably want to throw bows at that nigga because he's the one really like <laughs> yep. yeah, even if yep. the cousin knows she out there bad, but he out here bad. That's like, but that's not an option. You can't yeah, fight yeah. the man. Yeah, you gotta can. you either gotta tell your best friend or tell your cousin. Well, they're gonna find out when I go live for whooping this nigga. But the thing is, probably my relationship with both of them gonna be messed up because my best friend gonna be like, why you was whooping my man? I'm gonna be like, did you not see the rock on that girl finger that was beside your man? You might want to ask him why that money disappeared out y'all account last month. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, that is a hard mm-hmm. question. And it it's does very difficult. depend on, like the human emotions are not fair it's not a fair system and sometimes emotions are led by more than blood and more Mm -hmm. than like it's sometimes with familiarity so you just have to make a decision that you can live with honestly yeah and if and even if it's not saying anything right because i think i might just like sit there and rock like sophia did on the color purple at that (laughs) table When everybody was arguing around. (laughs) Well, just know that this is a difficult situation. But listeners, if you were to be put in a situation or do you have stories of something that may have been like this and you found yourself in a position where you had to choose between your friend and your family member, what did you do? Speaking of dinner, name one food that would get your black card revoked and your invitation to the cookout deferred. Something that's finna get y'all canceled right now. What's <laughs> one black food that, that, you know, people expect you to enjoy just because it's more like a cultural thing? Sweet potato pie. Oh, if you like pumpkin pie instead. Right. <clears throat> no, I don't like that either. <laughs> I don't. I do not subscribe to putting vegetables in dessert. You can't pay me Ooh, to believe that uh, that's supposed uh, to go together. No, uh, you don't uh. put vegetables in a pie and call it dessert. It and I wish that <laughs> I wish that we would be released from the chokehold <laughs> that is sweet potato pie. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, Girl, you don't like sweet potato pie, Caroline? Goodness, it has no. been to you. Oh no, no. I don't. <laughs> I don't like. It tastes like a yes. vegetable. No. Oh no. Mm-mm. Well, I would say any black person that eats everybody's potato salad is getting their black card revoked. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> you cannot be black and eat everybody's potato salad, <laughs> especially if it has raisins in it. <laughs> okay because you know that's the saying you know when you go to a family cookout who cooked this potato salad because you know i don't eat everybody potato salad <laughs> hey, that's right that's right so True. something that could potentially get my black car revoked would be putting sugar in my breakfast grains so if i'm eating oatmeal <gasps> rice or grits <laughs> they gonna have sugar in them <laughs> no you don't yes. oh, oh oh okay oh my God. sugar and butter what 
So you don't know. What okay, so milk, milk. Where'd it go? Yes, in the grits with the sugar and started, the butter. I started drinking too early. I think you <laughs> said you do or do not put sugar in your grits. I do. Okay. Oh, I, do I thought too. you said you don't. Oh, I okay. Do <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that I, I like the savory grits. Mm-mm. Matter of fact. This right here could definitely, it, and really it shouldn't get me canceled because it was like a growing up thing, but we didn't even eat grits growing up. Like my mom would make it sometime, but I was always like, oh, I don't want this stuff. It's gritty. And so when I went to this HBCU, my alma mater, they were always having, you know, breakfast buffets and all this different stuff. That was one of my favorite things besides Wing Wednesday and Catfish Fridays. They had a fire breakfast line. And that was the first place that I ever ate grits. And I liked them. Like they were a little bit thicker. I don't know. It just is all depending upon what you like. But I really enjoyed them. But I mean, I still didn't make a habit of eating them because it's all other types of good stuff to eat like rice and oatmeal which I, I put above grits never have eaten malta meal or cream of wheat so I can't subscribe to all those types of breakfast child breakfast. cream of wheat have you standing in line of doo-doo <laughs> okay <laughs> sitting here picking up that booty paper picking up right? that booty paper <laughs> <laughs> oh god okay so I am done. (laughs) All right. Are y'all ready to cork and toast? Yeah, you know it. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, before we do, I just have one quick thing to say. The real got canceled from daytime TV, and we're real happy about it. (laughs) And other news. Right. That's all we got to say about that. (laughs) Now, this portion of our episode is called Make a Toast or put a cork in it, where we chat about things happening in the news and decide if we're going to celebrate and make a toast, or if we're going to put a cork in it because it's a no for us. Now, before we get started, ladies, I'm curious to know, what are y'all drinking? Because I already peeked how Shalana acting, I'm gonna jump on this first. So I got some water and some tea. Next week, I'll be on something else. So Caroline, shoot me some of your recommendations so I know what I need to pick up from the liquor store. I got you. <laughs> what you mean how I'm acting? First of all, <laughs> I am not drinking alcohol either. <laughs> I am drinking some sparkling water, peach flavor like I did last week. So this is my make-believe champagne. I work in the morning. I ain't got time to be fooling with y'all. I'm being late to work. So I'm going to oh, keep we it the reason why you late. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, goodness. I am still heavy on the self-care this week. So I'm not drinking anything. I have a medicine ball again tonight. Just some good old hot tea. Y'all might think that we've had some liquor tonight already, but we have not. (laughs) But by the end of these stories, we might need to switch to some brown. Okay, so without further delay, let's get straight to it. A woman was excused from jury duty down over in Florida, Shalana, 
a possible juror in the Nicholas Cruz sentencing trial left circuit judge Elizabeth Scherer baffled after appealing to the needs of her quote unquote sugar daddy to justify skipping out on a trial. So last Monday, a juror who has come to be known as Mrs. Bristol told the court in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Shalana, <clears throat> that she had too many commitments to serve on the crew's sentencing trial. The woman told a local news station that she receives $8,000 per month from her sugar daddy and that she relies on the money. The sugar baby said, it's all day for six months and what's my hardship? I need my sugar daddy money. I have a sugar daddy and I'm married and have a husband just like that. Then she said, let me clarify, July 2nd is my birthday, July 4th is my son's birthday, and the 18th is my other son's birthday. And again, I need to figure out something because I also have my sugar daddy that I need to see every day. The judge was so taken aback and she said, I'm sorry. So the, the girl said, I said my sugar daddy, which left the judge and everybody in the courtroom looking so confused. She told Ms. Bristol that she wasn't exactly sure what she meant. So she clarified again, very, I said what I said. I'm married and I have a sugar daddy that I see every day. So I can't come up in here in your courtroom just to be sitting up here in this trial because I got to go see my old man with the big pockets. Well, she didn't say that, but just follow me. Anyway, the judge was still baffled and told the woman she was excused from the trial. Now, we all have our reasons for wanting to skip out on jury duty these days, but did this sugar baby take it too far in uh, Shalana's state of Florida? <laughs> Only in Florida does this, this type of stuff happen. And I want to say, I want it to be made known that this was not a young woman she looked like she was probably in her mid-60s, close to 70. So that's what made it just all the worst. Not saying that women who are not in their prime can't have sugar daddies, but I'm just saying it just, just kind of made the situation even uh, more bizarre. But I do want to say that she made donkey of the day on the breakfast club. <laughs> Caroline, after you submitted this story to the group we have, well, I heard about her on the Breakfast Club, and I think she made Donkey of the Day, rightfully so. But when I think about this whole scenario, I just have so many questions about this story. First, are there really sugar daddies out here giving women $8,000 a day? Like, I'm really questioning, is this really a sugar daddy or is it a pimp? Like, I, I don't know. And even if this were the truth, why did she have to say this out loud in the courtroom? You know, she could have made up a story that was more acceptable. I got to be to work because I got to pay my bills. You know, I can't take any more time off. You know, I took out a medical leave last year and I don't have any more time. And, and she was married at that. So I'm sure now her husband knows that she has a sugar daddy. Of course. Like this whole thing this is just, <laughs> yeah, this whole situation is just foolish. I didn't realize that this woman was in her 60s. Mm -hmm. I watched a video yesterday when I was, you know, trying to learn more about the story. And they showed her in the courtroom while she was talking to the judge in front of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and then they interviewed her after the fact. So she was on the local news. 
as well saying this stuff so after all of the enlightening things you had to say because i was just about to toast miss bristol only because honesty will take you far look at mrs bristol (laughs) her honesty (laughs) allowed her to shirk her jury duty responsibilities and all she had to do was stand up and basically put all of her family's honors and morality in question because she supposedly makes eight thousand dollars a month off of this sugar daddy and i just i didn't know that she was as old as she was but it's not like it's just her and her husband she got children I don't know if she has grandchildren. And so that really makes me feel like she does not care about really anything except for getting ahead. Does she have an actual job? Because how is she managing any of her responsibilities? And then, first of all, let me see how this math is mathing. Because I want to know 8,000 times 12. At, at that age, she don't need no. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. She making more than me. Right. <laughs> okay. First of all, you right, girl. Responsibilities in the home. She got Molly Mae out here handling her responsibilities. She has a personal nanny dropping her kids off and picking them up from school for $96,000 a year. And mm-hmm. the judge should have been up in her business a little bit closer because I'm sure that Mrs. Bristol is owing some back taxes. And when she pay her taxes back, <laughs> then probably Uncle Joe can go ahead and forgive my student loans. So I still, after, after learning all this stuff and probably what her children are going to have to deal with because their, their school age And I'm sure that even if her husband knew she had a sugar daddy, the children may not have known. And now the whole community knows and the students are going to know. And these children are going to get bullied or talk real bad about. So yeah, she's going to have to get a court. She's going to have to get a court. Not just because I'm hating because she's making $96,000 a year, but just because she didn't care about her family's image and went to the news. I'm gonna need to see this old woman, but mm-hmm. it's a cork for me. I cannot. <laughs> you cannot use your sugar daddy as an excuse to not show up for jury duty. <laughs> you just no, no, you Ooh. no, absolutely not. <laughs> and I'm giving the Yahoo the side eye for calling her a sugar baby. She is more like a sugared <laughs> senior citizen. <laughs> Child, that sugar done turned into molasses. <laughs> oh, behind, baby, this ain't your sugar daddy. This is your retirement plan. This is your four hundred one k. Like, I'm telling you, girl. This yeah. is your and retirement payout. Her. Yeah, they excused her. I think they probably did that because she really sounded unstable. Honestly, I don't think they believed that for one minute. You know, yeah, but on a serious note, I think we've talked about the importance of making time for jury duty on the show because it is so important. And Caroline, you brought that up a few times because it really makes a difference when we advocate for justice and for those in our community. And I feel like when people try to beat the system, you're not really holding up your part of the bargain. 
mm-hmm. it comes down to civil duties. And so this was ridiculous. Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was. But also she is not the peer that I want to be in my jury <laughs> when I go to court <laughs> for having to break up a fight between my cousin and my best friend over a man. So I'm glad she's gone with her sugar daddy. Daddy. <laughs> in our next story, a church in Chicago is fasting from white people. I'm going to have to go get some liquor for this one because the grape juice in my communion cup just is not enough. When it comes to fasting for Lent, people usually give up social media, certain foods, habits, etc. But it appears that a Chicago area church that is led by a white pastor announced that they are fasting from whiteness. The First United Church of Oak Park notified church members in March that they would fast from whiteness and will do so by not performing songs or hymns written or composed by white people. In this fast from whiteness, I cannot change the color of my skin or the way that it allows me to move through the world, a representative of the church told the congregation. But I can change what I listen to and whose voices I prioritize. So that is kind of the plan for our worship services through Lent, that we would fast from a time of prioritizing white voices and that we would use the music and poetry of Black, Indigenous, and people of color and see what the Spirit might do among us. The church also has a sign in the yard that reads fasting from whiteness. So... After the news broke that the church was fasting from this whiteness, the church also released a statement that said that our intent was to lay aside our usual frame of reference and open ourselves up to hearing the gospel message through the voices of Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color. Y'all, cultural appropriation or cultural appreciation? How do we feel about a white church fasting from themselves in the name of the Lord? (laughs) Ridiculous. I'm sorry. (laughs) Just ridiculous. And, you know, I learned today that now the church is having death threats and, and things made against them, the pastor and the congregation. So now they're not even in the sanctuary. They're having online services because of the threats that have been made because of their decision to do this. Which is crazy to me. You wanted a Black experience. Here you go. (laughs) Right? (laughs) As they shall receive. (laughs) Equally yoked. Right? I know. (laughs) I know during Lent, you are supposed to give up things that are meaningful to you. Because it's all about, you know, giving up yourself in order to reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. But I don't know about this. I just feel that this is another demonstration that's being taken too far. Like we've talked about Michael Todd in, in the past when he basically had that spit demonstration in order to gain attention. And, you know, again, I blame the climate that we are living in, where your Instagram likes, the shares and followers become more important than actually preaching and ministering. And I don't really see how this is serving the purpose of Lent. 
Like to me, it's making lit more of a racial issue than it is reflection. So mm-hmm. I, I'm going to have to court this. As I was reading this and trying to make sense of it, I kind of put myself in the, the shoes of the members and thought about it. Like if my pastor were to get in front of the church and say, hey, y'all, we finna be less black for Easter. Like, how would I feel about that? And I don't really think that would go over well with anybody at all. (laughs) You know, I do believe that we need to embrace other cultures. You know, one of the things that he said that I agree with is that the work of anti-racism in this country, the work of taking white perspectives out of the center and allowing other perspectives to have the space that work must come from the majority culture from white culture. So that was his direct words. And I absolutely get that but not during Lent. And, you know, I think that this is like, this endeavor that he has, it has to be something that is ongoing. It can't be just for a 40 day period. Like it has to be something that you are incorporating in your church and in your ministry on a regular basis for it to be impactful. What exactly about the Black experience are you teaching while you're fasting from your own race? Like, it's it's giving unwashed, unseasoned chicken cooked with cats running around the kitchen counter and served at the company potluck for me. Like, did you study or like teach the meaning behind these Negro spirituals that you're starting to sing at your congregation? Or did you just like water down, pass me not a gentle savior or Mary, don't you weep? Like, did you invite and pay Black choirs to perform or invite Black pastors to fellowship with you on Sundays? And why is your service so white that you have to fast from it anyway? I will toast to the idea because when I was growing up, I grew up in a Baptist church in the Midwest, and we used to have an ongoing relationship with a predominantly white church. I think it was Presbyterian. I was little, so I can't remember. I think it was Presbyterian, but it was a predominantly white church. And we would congregation swap every few months where their pastor and their choir would come to our church. And then our pastor and our choir would go to their church. And it was ongoing. And it was a very like fun fellowship. You know, we would break bread after and, you know, our youth groups would do activities together and things like that. And it was great. We didn't have to remove part of our spiritual identity just to appease another or anything like that. So I can toast the idea, but I'm corking the execution because there are so many other ways to get this right. But it sounds like, like you said, Shalana, they just wanted some social media likes and some views and not really do this in the name of the Lord and Black Jesus. Yeah, I didn't have to try to take all the different points away. I am going to toast again to the idea because I think that maybe when the idea was thrown out, it probably started from them thinking about how privileged they are and how their the skin color has never affected them in a negative way from their birth so they've always started with an advantage when we used to do those have you guys ever seen that experiment where they have like a start line and then they're like if you are 
if you're a girl then take us two steps back and if you're backwards yes Mm -hmm. and so depending upon your advantages in life or what you had going you may have to take more steps back and another person get to take several steps forward and then you are all expected to run this race but because one person got eight steps already ahead of you and then you had to take five to ten steps away from the start line even though y'all started at the same time then you may never reach the person that when it's time to be at the finish line you may never reach the same space or be in the same environment or have any of the same opportunities that the person who had 10 steps ahead ever garnered so I think that at the heart of it they may have started just trying to make sure that their members gave up something that was important to them, which I mean, you know, we have talked a lot about how important our race is to us and how proud we are of being black. And so I'm sure it's so many um, times that they are probably like, yeah, I'm proud of being white. This country is found by us, for us, all this And then somewhere along the line, somebody said, let's put this out here on our billboard because, you know, they always trying to grab attention. Any church signs can say any crazy thing to get somebody to stop, take a picture and share it and upload it. And it became viral. And so even if you started from a place of where your intentions were pure, as soon as you went to go outside to grab that uh, attention, whatever the motivation was, then those intentions took another road. And so at the heart of it, the whole message is lost. Like, what are you really giving up and sacrificing yeah. to be grow more intimate with Jesus, to think mm-hmm. about his journey to the cross? and Mm -hmm. the sacrifices he made and dying and for our sins and all of that like this has nothing to do with it but now (laughs) since they get these death threats like you said Caroline (laughs) you wanted the black experience (laughs) and and here we are I mean Mm. just getting this headline sent over in our group chat made me cringe and then yeah, I was like, no, not during Lent. Like I'm mm-hmm. all for, you know, being inclusive and trying to connect with worship from different mm-hmm. cultures and different experiences because my bishop even did that too. Like there's a synagogue that my bishop and their rabbi are really close. And the rabbi invited the members of that synagogue to come to our church and we all congregated together and they preached a sermon together like he would say something and then he would say something in his language and you know at first I think everybody in my church probably thought it was crazy like well, Jewish people are gonna come worship with us and they did but it ended up being a really beautiful experience and I remember when I was in my religion course I wish I really would have taken um, advantage of this project but when I was taking religion at um, my HBCU, Florida Morning University, we all had to take the religion course. That was part of your prerequisite. And one of the projects that we had the option to do was either write a paper about a religion that you, you didn't know anything about. We had to write like a, I think it was like a 10 page paper or either go visit 
three different worship services from different religions. I chose the easy way out just to write a paper. <laughs> but looking back, I, I wish that I would have, you know, gone to three different services and just kind of like experience what they went through. But I think the reason why I didn't do it was out of fear because I didn't know what to expect, the unknown. But I think it, it's beauty in getting to know like the different like religions and why people believe the certain things that they believe and the gods that, you know, that they may serve. I mean, I think that it, we should really be not saying that we have to believe in what other people believe, but we should be open to learn um, about it. And this could have been a wonderful thing, but I think it was executed very poorly. Because now yeah. it's giving me, you remember those Disney cheerleaders came and they was wearing native yes. gear and all that. Mm-hmm. And they was chanting these crazy racial slurs and all this different stuff. Mm-hmm. It gives you those vibes. Because I mean, since I went away from home, which I left at 18, I went to college and I really have never moved back to Tennessee. I have went to all manner of church and I can tell you this sometimes they, I mean, maybe not for Lent, but sometimes they need to step outside because when I look back upon my life, some of the most racist things that I've ever experienced in my life happened in those places. And it makes you think, how can you be preaching this and you really have an intimate relationship with God, yet these things like your ideals, your fundamental basis is still very much like colonizer type Mm -hmm. attitude. Like it's really insane. Paula White, and all the other ones. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I definitely agree that they need to learn about more, be more culturally appropriate and everything. It's just that Lent maybe was not the way to go. And definitely not advertising it like you selling something in a grocery store. Right. So they get, like, get this, for that. Get this two for one black experience, y'all. <laughs> we we got y'all. Like, see. well i hope that they're safe you know we don't wish violence on anyone and in light of the death threats they're receiving um you know since they wanted the black experience we hope that all of their members are safe but in the words of david as he fought goliath run up run up get done up now for our next story It's another Tuesday and another mediocre man is on somebody's podcast with relationship advice. This time it's Cam Newton. He can't throw a football, but he can throw around reasons why women don't know how to let a man lead. So Cam Newton says that there is a major difference between women and a bad B. In a recent interview, the NFL quarterback shared his opinions on what he feels the role of a woman should be and the things he admires and looks for. During a recent episode of Million Dollars Worth a Game, it's a podcast, the athlete discussed his upbringing and how it shaped him. He said, you know, he grew up in a three-parent household, his mother, his father, and his grandmother. And he knew what a woman was, not a bad bee, but a woman. So when the podcast host, you know, he asked Cam Newton what the difference was, he said, 
a bad B is a person who just, you know, girl, I'm a bad B. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I look the part, but I don't act the part. Then he went on to break down what he feels the characteristics of a woman are. He said, a woman for me is handling your own, but knowing how to cater to a man's needs. And I think a lot of times that when you get that aesthetic of I'm a boss B, I'm a this, I'm a that, no baby, but you can't cook. You don't know when to be quiet. You don't know how to allow a man to leave. So naturally, his comments garnered mixed opinions on social media. Some agreed with the NFL player, while others felt that his comments were misogynistic. Now, Cameron is not the first man to get over here on Blue Ivy's internet and tell women why they can't find a man. But the question is, do we toast this logic or do we cork the unsolicited advice about women and bad bees? I just want to say that it takes some kind of person who does not identify with this certain type of gender to get up on stage and define what it is to be that specific gender. So you out here telling millions of women that if they can't cook and if they ain't out here serving up a man and determining what all he needs to be the best version of himself, then she ain't a real woman. What we really should have been asking him was for his definition of what it means to be a man. Because when you are out here leading your family, then it really doesn't matter whether you're a woman or a bad B. You're going to get out there and you're going to find the person that fits you in the relationship that you're trying to pursue. And that y'all going to come together and be equally yoked. So Cam Newton, we definitely didn't ask for this advice. Maybe when you tell us how you choose your spouses or when you show us, I guess, because, you know, actions speak a little bit louder than words, that you have found a woman and not, you know, just someone to recreate with, then maybe we will decide that you have some kind of expert knowledge or you are someone we pull aside for some advice. But right now, we can't trust you. So he definitely get a court. First of all, Cam Newton can't give me any relationship advice until he stops wearing dresses and skirts and kilts <laughs> to his press conferences. <laughs> Cam, don't come for me because I got time today, okay? <laughs> he doing out here dressed like a bad bee. Child, please. That's why he can tell you the difference. <laughs> Listen, my only counterclaim to what he said is that, you know, there are some men out here who do not know how to be men. When it comes down to being in a relationship or being married to a woman, they don't have the slightest clue. And some of them have daddy issues, mama issues, and some of them are even emotionally unhealthy. They're not emotionally healthy enough to be the men that you need them to be. So women are supposed to cater to someone like this. You know, I feel that most women who are secure in their relationships, women who feel protected and 
genuinely loved by their partner will automatically cater to them. It will, it will come automatically because women are nurturers by nature. And most of us get this catering and nurturing thing. Honestly, it is something that we have. So when you treat us right, it may automatically turn on. So, and then this whole catering thing should really be 50, 50. It shouldn't be just, you know, a woman always catering to her man. It should be give and take type of thing. And so, yeah. And I didn't hear him mention anything about that during his interview either. I don't know that and I'm corking it, but that's where I stand on it. Now, why couldn't Cameron be like the lovely gentleman from last week's episode who kept their comments to themselves and just did the Lord's work by lowering gas prices at the pump? Why, why can't he be like them? At, at this point, I feel like anytime a man gets on a podcast giving unsolicited relationship advice like this, it's an automatic cork for me, it's, especially when you ain't got no job. You ain't got no job, Cam. You worried about the wrong thing over here. And as, as a matter of fact, I am throwing the bottle at him just like he tries to throw them touchdown passes and couldn't. You out here, <laughs> you out here throwing seeds around with your two baby mothers who are absolutely gorgeous, by the way. I'm pretty sure that they are sweet, lovely women. But you out here throwing your seeds around with these two baby mamas and your eight kids. And you don't have a leg to stand on to talk about being a woman or a bad bee, because right now you are just a baby daddy with no job, sitting around at your friend mm-hmm. house talking about women this and women that. That mm-hmm. uh, sit your free agent self down somewhere. Hello, because we got time today. Right, and we ain't gonna giggle, giggle just because we've been drinking because all of us, you know, are on a different plane tonight. So don't come over here with it. (laughs) No, sorry, Cameron. It's a cork for us. Now, this last story, I have been, I have been so ready to talk about this. Oh my gosh. Okay, birds of a feather flock together. Paula Patton went viral after serving us a fried chicken recipe that nobody asked for. Now y'all talking about getting the black heart revoked and y'all over here dragging me about this sweet potato pie. We finna get into home girl. Now Paula Patton is all about peace, love, and fried chicken. Earlier this week, a clip of the 46 year old frying up some chicken for her son Julian went viral, eliciting backlash for her cooking methods. She said it might look crazy, It's the way we do it. My mama taught me. The Jumping the Broom star was criticized across social media for not thoroughly washing her raw chicken and for her seasoning process. The latter included adding spices to the chicken while it was already frying in the pan rather than coating the poultry beforehand. First of all, let me back up. She just ran the chicken through the water, didn't wash it, didn't get a lime, didn't add no vinegar or anything. She just took that, that slimy chicken, just ran it through the water one time and said, oh, it's clean. We're done. We're done. Then she didn't season the chicken. She didn't season the flour. She didn't, she didn't even season it. I don't even know if she used the egg yolk. She seasoned the grease 
the oil in the pan while it was hot. Somebody on Twitter said, I saw Paula Patton season grease this afternoon. Stop the world. I want to get off. Meanwhile, somebody else said, Paula Patton's chicken is like eating dry Captain Crunch and then drinking the milk after. (laughs) Now, some people also came for her, but mind you, she was raised by a white mom and an African-American dad. So for her recipe, suggesting that her frying process was indicative of which parent she took after. As she acknowledged, it was her mama's recipe. Somebody else said she ran that chicken under the water for two seconds. She put the chicken in the flour with no seasoning. Then she seasoned the chicken while it was in the grease. I am sick and I'm mad. So do we cluck? I mean, do we cork this recipe or toast to Paula Patton for trying to be the Paula Dean of fried chicken and sharing her mama's recipe with us? Why y'all shaking y'all head? <laughs> you know, at least she used lottery seasoning. <laughs> Girl, okay, that ain't gonna that's help them clumps of seasoning that's gonna be on sitting on top of that grease. <laughs> okay, she about to start an electric fire. <laughs> putting that all that stuff in that naked. hot grease. <laughs> right. She got naked chicken mm-hmm. out here. And Julian can't, you can't tell me he enjoying it. And mm-hmm. then... Who eating all that chicken? Cause it looked like enough chicken to feed. Girl, that looked like a cookout chicken. I think she was feeding her son's class. It she was, was like other people kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was for her son's class or or his sports team or something. They all have her. salmonella. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought that Somebody- you couldn't do that no more. It had to be packaged up and sealed up yes. she need to uh cook that food and go take it to them people at that church who fasting from whiteness they want to be black so bad let them eat her chicken because we ain't doing it Girl. <laughs> you know what i'm not quirking paula Patton. i'm quirking her mama in his recipe <laughs> That's who I'm quirking her mama. Uh If she grew up on this, she probably doesn't know any better. Okay, she probably was like me. (laughs) I I never cooked at home, but when I grew up, I was calling my mama all the time, like, Mama, how am I supposed to do this? Then what? And then what? And so (laughs) maybe she just called her on the phone and wrote down the steps and she bungled a couple maybe she didn't see her mama doing this and y'all really need to give her a little grace because she actually ranched it off because you know some (laughs) people take it from off their diaper paper and that's it Mm -hmm. they don't even even do nothing else like nothing else so (laughs) at least she let the water touch it Although she ain't plucked no feathers off or nothing. Yeah, nothing. But you know what? I know that there are so many ways to cook one dish. Like there are a thousand ways to cook macaroni and a thousand ways to make a red velvet cake. And each recipe brings on a different enjoyable flavor. So you finna go over so there and try what chicken. I'm saying is maybe this is the case with Paula's mama's chicken. I don't know. She ate it all her life. I know I wouldn't eat it. 
<laughs> but I'm curious to know who has and are there other people that cook their chicken like this? Because maybe this is a way that you can season chicken and, and the heat brings in the flavor or something like that. Because I watched her cook it and she put the chicken in the grease and she seasoned each chicken wing individually and she flipped it while it was in the grease and, and seasoned it even more. So I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying I wouldn't try it, but maybe there's that's just another way to cook it. I don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Why would she do it on live? That's that's my thing. Cause she ain't know no better. That's all she knew. <laughs> she thought that if nobody else was in her corner, then her daddy folks was. Mm-mm. And then Robin Thick. Robin Thick had the nerve to write a whole album trying to get her back for that unseasoned <laughs> chicken. Ch- child. I-, I know you nasty. Come on, get at me. <laughs> oh, no. But I like the way that she was a team player. She did come back later after she discovered that her video went viral for no good reason. And she defended her mama's recipe. She also said that um, she is definitely open to learning new recipes for the future, and she thanked everybody for their input. Not new. And and she should be. It, exactly. <laughs> it, <laughs> and she also wants y'all to know that she did wash that chicken before she fed it to uh, Robin Thicke's son, okay? Because <laughs> she was defending that. She's like, I did wash it more than once. But that's not how you wash. You don't just run chicken through the sink. That's not washing it. And that's all she did while she's trying to double down on it. No, that was nasty. And the Lord wasn't nowhere near that fried chicken. Mm-mm. Ain't nobody seasoning grease. Child, you're going to have to call Station 19, Chicago Fire. What's the mother fire shows on TV? You're going to have to call all of them to come to her house after she oh, burned that stove up. <laughs> 911, all of them. It Go get Angela Bassett. Mm-hmm. Okay. Of course it looked burnt. You putting black pepper and all this other stuff in grease. Child, I'm surprised child. it's got all of that color though. I mean, yeah, the seasoning got all, you know how when you cooking and then every batch that you put in after it'd be like stuff just floating on the top and floating on the bottom. They'd be like the burnt yes. stuff. And that's, yes. that's what's on her chicken. That's not appetizing, and I can't believe she Mm-mm. fed it to other people's kids. She that is did. not of the Lord. <laughs> but while we talking, we probably need to go and make sure that when we order them from Wingstop and Buffalo Wild Wings, that they they ain't seasoning their chicken like her, because they might because they don't take well. Then then that proves my theory. Back then, when I said everybody cooks things differently and it still has an enjoyable taste, if that is how they are cooking their chicken at Wingstop and all those other places, that proves my thing. <laughs> Rick Ross would never do that to us. He sure better not because he's going to lose my business. Next time, I'm going to have, just for this reason, I'm going to have to order it and sit up in there and watch them. I ain't see I ain't see y'all wash that chicken. Man, then I ain't gonna be able to eat it because see, look at you about to mess mm-hmm. up your blessings. Don't mm-hmm. be lined up to do them <laughs> with that booty paper on the seat. <laughs> let, let me see how she likes this. 
All right, so we have reached the sidebar segment. I like to call this segment the meat and potatoes of the show because exploring celebrity gossip and world news can be intriguing and entertaining, but we all need an inspiring word, something we can internalize and live by. And in honor of Black Maternal Health Awareness Week, we will be discussing the Black maternal health crisis and us as Black women advocating for our own health. Before we start our conversation, I wanted to read a snippet from an article that discussed some Black maternal health statistics. Black women are 27% more likely to experience severe pregnancy complications than white women, and these disparities cannot be explained by differences in age or education. According to the latest CDC data, maternal mortality rates among Black women with a completed college education or higher was 1.6 times that of white women with less than a high school diploma. So difference in education does not seem to make the difference. We've all heard stories like Serena Williams, whether it's from another celebrity or someone you know, why do you think it's so much harder for some medical professionals to listen to Black women? Because when they have gone to school, studied, gotten their degrees, their certifications, put in this time, it's hard or difficult, I should say, for them to be told by someone who hasn't done those things that what you're telling me may not be the correct thing for me. But what I think that physicians have to realize is that if you work in one area, so say if you work in a predominantly white institution and you don't see a lot of people of color come in, then you may not see all the different conditions and things that happen with people of color when they are laboring. A white mom and a black mom can have the same diagnosis and experience different symptoms. One white woman and the next white woman can have the same diagnosis or disease or disorder and exhibit different symptoms. So it takes lots of years of experience and lots of years of research and consuming information to be able to, to adequately diagnose and adequately manage care of patients, no matter what kind of circumstance they come in um, and present with you. And things are forever changing. So if you can't take advice or you can't listen when someone is speaking to you about the body that they've been in all of their life, then something's going to be missed. Yeah, I think you're right. And look, y'all know I did not go to med school. I went to Gray's Anatomy University, graduated cum laude in my class. But what I do know, and not just from watching the show, but listening to my friends who are real medical professionals, diagnosing things for Black people or Black women don't always look like what you learn in a textbook. And the way that symptoms present themselves for white skin or white women or white bodies doesn't necessarily look the exact same way on Black folk. 
And I think sometimes that there's that unintentional bias that you may not realize or recognize, and that can make it just a little bit harder to not necessarily listen to Black women. I mean, we know that that is happening in the Black community, but I think also medical professionals just aren't trained to recognize Black symptoms because they're not as present in a textbook necessarily. And like Nalita said, if you're not in an area where you serve a highly populated Black community, then you really won't be exposed to those things to recognize those differences until you're actually faced with a Black patient. So I don't think, and close the curtain, of course, we all feel this way. Every medical professional is not biased on purpose. All of them are not out to do harm or to just intentionally dismiss the way Black women feel. However, there are some who do, unfortunately, but I personally, I think that a lot of it is just due to a lack of understanding more than it is like intentionally trying to dismiss what we're saying and how we feel. Okay, I do agree, especially with that unconscious bias in the medical system, because it's there. And there's also a false narrative that Black women do not feel pain, that our skin is somewhat thicker and we have less sensitive nerve endings. When I was preparing for this conversation, I ran across a survey that was conducted in 2016 where they surveyed white medical students and nearly half of them had false beliefs or perceptions about the biological differences of Black patients. And I don't think that schools, especially medical schools, like we might, nursing schools, they do all an okay job when they educate, you know, their students about being culturally competent, but medical schools don't, they don't really get enough of that. And I don't think they're, these schools are doing enough to bring this issue to the forefront because, you know, nowadays our society is becoming more and more and more diverse and diversity in healthcare is important. Like having diverse medical staff and medical teams is so important so that way you can give culturally competent care. But until that happens, everyone needs to learn how to take care of different cultures. And if you were not taught it in school, you need to take the initiative to learn how to take care of the people who are in your community. And I I can't stress enough, like care is individual. And a lot of times in medicine, we get so caught up on doing what has always been done for everybody and it cannot be provided that way. And it surely can't be provided in an ethnocentric view. There are studies out there that indicate that black babies and black mothers just do better when they are cared for by black providers. And I don't think that this is only because Black doctors and nurses care more, but it's because they have an understanding of the culture. And so I I really think that we need to really tighten up on just learning how to care for Black women, learning how to care for Black babies, and being more mindful, like when they say, okay, this hurts, or I'm experiencing this, look, investigate it, look into it. You know, because in healthcare, I see this so much, like if a woman is not complaining specifically about a certain symptom, it might not get the attention that it should. 
So for example, if a woman says, okay, I have a headache, it might get dismissed as a lack of sleep because she has a new baby at home or she's having hormonal changes, but it can be indicative of a more serious problem. So that goes on a lot in the healthcare system. And I just really feel like women should really advocate for themselves more too. If they have that symptom that is really bothering them and is being treated as something that's minor, be persistent. Um, Just like with Serena Williams, be persistent on that doctor. And if you don't get the answers from that one doctor that you're trying to have help you, then you reach out to the next person. And I, I can't stress that anymore. (laughs) So the next question, how have you had to advocate for your health or the health of someone in your care? Well, I think for me, sometimes it can feel hard to do because I'm not a medical professional. And I know I joke about, you know, like watching grades all the time and like having like a TV medical license. I know I I joke about it a lot, but when it comes to me being in an exam room, an examination room or, you know, at urgent care or anything, it can be really scary to you know, like hear something from a doctor and you want to think that it's the right thing because it sounds good and in your head, what they're saying kind of makes sense, but you still just kind of question it and you don't know if, oh, I don't want to like waste their time if they've already said that it's not an issue or what. But most recently I pulled a muscle in my upper back, like toward my shoulders. It's a long story, but I pulled a muscle and from the muscle that I pulled, it was causing me chest pain every time I took a deep breath. So it wasn't like a constant pain, just, you know, when I'm going about my like normal routines, but anytime I had to like sneeze and take a deep breath or cough, or if I was just like out of breath from walking up three flights of stairs or trying to work out or anything that, you know, would just cause me to like do deep breathing, it would be really painful. And I would feel my chest tighten up And it was getting really, really um, concerning for me. So I went to urgent care, they ran some tests and they said that there's nothing wrong with my heart. There's nothing wrong with my lungs. It's just your pulled muscle causing this pain. Follow up with your primary in like a week and you're fine. And I looked at him like, I, I can't take a deep breath (laughs) because it hurts so bad. And I wasn't comfortable with those answers So he showed me my test results and like walked through them with me. And then we looked at, you know, my chest x-ray together and he was showing me like the different things that he looked for. And so for me, advocating for myself didn't necessarily look like second guessing the doctor or asking him to do additional testing or questioning his line of, of practice. But for me, advocating for myself meant asking more questions so that I could fully understand until I was comfortable with what he was telling me. And so sometimes it doesn't always mean questioning your doctor to think that, oh, what they're saying is wrong. Cause like, again, I didn't go to med school. He could be absolutely right. I don't know. But until I am comfortable understanding the things that he's telling me, I had to keep asking questions. And honestly, it was hard to do because I don't want to be a quote unquote difficult patient or anything like that. I don't want to be the problem child 
or the 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 stressed out black woman on the floor I, I didn't want to be that person but because we're talking about chest pain and I'm 30 I I don't have time to have heart disease or a collapsed lung or a heart attack I, I don't have time for that and so I had to just keep asking like, okay, I don't understand this. What does this test mean? There was a trace of something in my blood. What does this mean? Okay, so that's how you ruled that out. Okay, well, what's that on the x-ray? And, you know, it took time, but I'm really grateful that the doctor was just so patient with all my questions instead of just telling me to like, go follow up with your primary for this kind of stuff. But for me, advocating for myself means just asking those questions and kind of getting out of my own head when I start to think that I'm just being a bother or I'm being a burden because there are other patients who need his attention too and things like that. And that's good, Caroline, because I am still learning how to try and advocate for myself because some of the questions that I needed to ask my OBGYN when I went in, I would never have known to ask those questions if I hadn't listened to Shalana's podcast so the eavesdrop is a very very good resource if you are trying to find something that is very woman focused or women's health focused and trying to know what questions that you really need to ask your doctor how do I advocate for myself when to know that something with my body is wrong and how to know because so many people are out of touch with what is the normal in their bodies that when they go to their physicians, they can't even tell them, okay, this is how it normally is. But I'm telling you that now, because who is the biggest authority on your body? Is it that doctor who hasn't lived with it for all that time? Or is it you? Because it should be you. So I am still learning how to advocate for myself, how to ask the questions. And like you said, how not to be looked at as that person that's a Karen or And they do, they label you. If you ask too many questions, if you call out too many times, if you seem to be not just immediately on board with what the plan is and what they're saying, but you want to know, you want clarification because you want to know in layman's terms what they're saying, then sometimes you can get pushed back and you can be labeled a difficult patient. So I'm learning all of that as well. And it is very scary for me to have a family member who has to go into the hospital or undergo a procedure and they don't know anything about the healthcare field because they can be told something and they can be misled to believe something. And that's not the actual procedure. That's not really the policy. That's not what we do. And so it's very, very scary. They can be taken advantage of you want to be able to trust the care provider that you are going to. And so you want to think that they're not just looking at this symptom and seeing how can I get rid of this symptom and give them something to put a bandaid on this symptom, but you want them to be looking at your whole body as a system. And why is this symptom happening? Like what's at the root of the problem. And so for me, I don't really have a good story of where I have advocated for myself, It's more of a patient story, but I remember, and I I used to work weekend option only. So I would come to work on Saturday and Sunday. And at one point I worked on Thursdays as well. And so I would come to work and we had this one patient who came in. They had a very 
complex history, but underlying, they had gotten an injury and it was not healing well um, because they also had diabetes. And I work with kids. And so whenever diabetes is involved, I really love teaching. That's why I know that eventually that's where I'm going to uh, find my purpose. But whenever I have children and they come in and we're doing teaching on diabetes, I really stress, especially when it's type two diabetes, because it shouldn't be this way. But sometimes if you're not a type one diabetic, it feels like the education that they're giving you is more subpar just because they're expecting you to be non-compliant. They're expecting you not to really do it because your body can survive without getting insulin. You can be put on oral glucose medications and that can help control your blood sugars as long as your lifestyle is changing, including like what you eat, your exercise, all these different things. You can come off of insulin, but only if you take the teaching that you get as a child and those resources and apply them to your life. Because I have had many parents who come in with their child who is diagnosed and be like, I never knew that about insulin or I never, like the doctor just said, you have diabetes and they gave me a insulin pen and told me to dial up to this number every day. And so they don't teach how to count carbs. They don't teach how many carbs is in this and you need to treat your blood sugar based on your blood sugar and the amount of carbs that you're ingesting. They don't teach that you can control your blood sugar just based on exercise and how much you're eating and your portion sizes and all these different things. They don't teach that. They tell you, take this medicine and you're going to have this for the rest of your life. Like so many people passing out, can't control it. And so I would always stress to them, get this while you are a child, especially if they were near 18, 19, 20, because they're getting ready to transition into the adult world. And so that was really my passion. If they were a person of color, you coming in, I'm going to tell you that you don't want to end up with organ failure because of this. Diabetes not only affects your blood sugar, but eventually it's messing with your kidneys. It's messing with your heart. It's messing with your brain. Like all of those different things can be affected and just getting on their level and telling them that if this is not controlled, then this can happen. It, you could see the light bulb come on and they were that much more motivated to do what they needed to do and to learn all that they can and to keep in contact with their doctors, to follow up on their appointments. And it just really broke my heart that every time, cause I advocated for him that way, but that wasn't even the meat of it. This kid was not getting bathed until I came in and gave him a bath. That meant two times out of the week, they were getting a bath. Because people would not really come in and tell this baby, you know, I'm going to get you some pain medicine and we're going to turn over in this bed because that's what's best for you. I'm going to need you to take your pain medicine and get up with physical therapy because that's what's best for you. These people are not doing this stuff because they want you to be in pain and because of this. Maybe you're not communicating the level of pain you're in so that you can get adequate pain control. Like, after talking to them, going to talk to my team, then we upped the, the patient's pain medicine. We made sure that they were eating properly, made sure that they were getting bathed. And people were always like, let me give this patient to you because you, you're the only one that can get them to do what they need to do. No, you, this patient is 16, 17, 18. They want to know why 
I have to take this medicine, why I need to eat this food, why I need to do this, and that I'm gonna have adequate pain control to get through this. And until you actually treat people, even when they're kids, until you actually treat them as a human being and explain just as you would why you need to do this stuff instead of just being like, oh, they refused. This is a 16, 17, 18 year old. Like they can make a, a, a good decision if you explain the need for this thing. I'm not coercing them. I'm telling them that this and this and this is going to lead to them getting out this hospital. Whereas they've been here three, four, five months, they want to go home. And if you don't do this, you're going to be sitting back in this bed. And so that is a time that I know that I had to advocate for my patient, not only with them and help teach them how to advocate for themselves, but advocate to the doctor. Come in here and explain to this baby what's going on because they need to know. It's hard. <laughs> it's easy to do it for my patient, but it's hard for me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what I like about nursing. That's the art of nursing. Like we look at healthcare, not just from the disease of it, but we look at it at a holistic standpoint. So we look at the psyche, you know, the social, um, economical you know, portion of it. We look at all of it because all of that does affect disease process. But I just think that a good way for all of us really to be able to advocate for, for ourselves is number one, interviewing the provider that you have chosen, that you've selected to take care of you, that you have trusted with your health. There's nothing wrong with asking your doctor questions. I remember I was talking to a patient the other day who's getting ready to have a procedure with a specialist. And she was like, oh, you know, how many cases has anybody died underneath his hands or whatever? And I said, well, I can't really tell you that, but you can ask him. And she looked at me with big eyes. I said, no, you can ask him. Have you lost any patients to a procedure like this? How successful have your procedures been? There's nothing wrong with questioning a doctor about their background and how they care for their patients and the success. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with researching the person before you go to them, because this is somebody who you are trusting your life with. And another way that we can advocate for ourselves is by learning more about your health. If you've had a diagnosis, look it up, read about it, read about the medications. Don't just take something because it has just, it's been prescribed to you. Read up the medications, read up the side effects, ask questions about it. If your doctor orders labs, they should go over every last lab with you. I ordered it because of this and this, these were the results and this is what we're gonna do about it. And if you don't get this from your provider, then you need to switch. There's nothing wrong because you have the power of the purse. You are keeping their practice alive with your insurance, with your co-payments, you know? So we actually need our patients more than y'all need us, <laughs> to be honest, you know? So you have the right to just to ask. And if you feel like you're not getting that, then you need to move elsewhere. And I always tell my patients that even with me, if you feel like, you know, you're not getting the care that you need, even with me, 
you can go somewhere else. You have that freedom, you have that right, and you have that choice. But just real quick, I advocated for myself last year when I went and did blood work with my doctor. She didn't know I was a nurse practitioner, didn't tell her. Usually my providers don't know. I don't say anything about it because I want them to treat me like they treat their patients. I want, if I have a diagnosis, I need you to sit down and educate me about my health and what I need to do. Because a lot of times, and I'm guilty of it sometimes, like if you have a patient who you know that's in healthcare, you don't explain as much because you feel that they should already know it. But that's not true because there are a lot of people, a lot of healthcare providers that specialize in different specialties. And so they don't get a lot of certain things. So I just don't say anything. But anyway, this was a new doctor and needless to say, I don't go to her anymore, but this was a new doctor and I had given her my family history. She knew my past medical history and everything. She knew everything about me. And when it came down to ordering labs, I noticed that she didn't order an A1C. And for those of you who don't know what A1C is, A1C is a um, blood test that is given to you once a year. And it basically screens you for diabetes. It, it tells you what your, how your body has been controlling your sugars over a short period of time. And she didn't order A1C out of all my lab work. So I noticed I was looking at my labs as I was walking to the car, like everything she ordered for me. And I said, what? there's no A1C. So I turned back around and I went into the office and I asked the medical assistant if I could speak to her again. And she took me to the office where the doctor was sitting. And I said, well, I noticed you didn't order A1C for me. I, I thought maybe you forgot it. And she goes, oh, you don't need one. I don't need an A1C. <laughs> she said, no. She said, you're young and you know there's no need to screen. We'll look at your CMP and see what your glucose is like. And then at that point, if you need it, I'll order um, an A1C. I told her, I said, listen, I just told you that everybody on my mama's side got diabetes, including my mom. My dad has diabetes. I ain't the smallest branch on the tree. You need to order me an A1C. And she looked at me like, okay. And she ordered me an A1C. Now it came back normal, but I just felt like she wasn't thorough. I had risk factors for it. And, you know, and I feel like anybody, the glucose to me is not a good measurement because like I did the day before I got ready to do my labs, I went and I ran like three laps and I, and I did those tests fasting and my glucose level was real normal. Okay. But had I not had the A1C, you know, there was no gauge, like you can really beat the system. So you just have to kind of become more knowledgeable about what you're supposed to be doing every year, your screenings and things like that, and really ask for things, even if you feel like it might be crazy to ask, but just ask for it. You never know. Tell me more about running three miles so that I can lower my A1C <laughs> number before I go to the doctor. Tell me more about that. Let me advocate that. Now the A1C, it. It, it will tell on you, you can run, you can run a six mile or a 5k before it. And if you have not been doing well with eating right and all that stuff, it's still going to say that you've been doing the wrong things. 
But what I was talking about was the glucose on the CMP, which is your glucose level at that point in time. Mm -hmm. The A1C is a measurement of how you've been controlling your glucose within, I think, a three months, three, four month range, Mm -hmm. like how you've been doing. But the glucose (laughs) in the CMP is that point in time. And so before I went and did my labs, I went and ran three miles. (laughs) I did it fast and like I was supposed to do, and it was perfect. Child, but I the think A1C I fail. The truth. <laughs> fail. I'm gonna fail if I take that A1C. I probably will fail. <laughs> oh, oh goodness, they won't even give me a number. I just get an F. <laughs> well, this has been an awesome episode of Close the Curtain. I really hope that you enjoyed us. We enjoy entertaining you for sure. Thank you, Caroline, and thank you, Melita, and meet us next week on Tuesday for another awesome episode of Close the Curtain. Peace. Thank you for joining us this week on Close the Curtain podcast with Melita, Shalana, and Caroline. I hope you enjoyed this brief respite and that something we said inspired or motivated you to close the curtain on whatever is not for the season in which you find yourself in. If you're enjoying Close the Curtain, please rate the show, share it. These things allow more women access to the same wonderful content that you enjoy. If you have questions, comments, or you want to suggest show topics, Leave a message for us on our email, hello at closethecurtain.com. Again, that's hello at closethecurtain.com. You can also stay connected with Close the Curtain Podcast on Instagram at our handle at Close the Curtain Podcast. Our website is www.closethecurtain.com. And our podcast can be enjoyed on the following platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor with more to come. This has been an awesome show. Don't forget to meet us next time at the intersection of pop culture and wellness. Bye.